Sit down and be set free. Come to the table. Uh, okay, I want to read you some verses today, and then we're going to jump into our sermon. This is from 1 Corinthians, and by the way, don't think that I went soft. This is my mama's Bible, and I'm not, and I'm not changing it for you or anybody else. Um, and and uh, I found it a few weeks ago. I mean, I'd had it on my shelf, and, and uh, I'm, I'm in ministry today because of my mama, and that was yours. Get that out here. <clears throat> But thanks for your help. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in ministry today. My daddy, I love my daddy. He taught me lots of stuff. But I'm, I'm in ministry today because of my mama's love for the local church. And uh, I want to read to you from her Bible today about the Lord's Supper. Paul is writing the church in Corinth in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. You're messing up. I'm going to tell you like it is. This is what Paul says. For your uh, meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that there... That when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. That should be an ouch right there. He said, there are differences, there are divisions. He said, well, I guess it's okay because at least we're going to know who the true followers of Christ are because God's going to reveal that. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. They were having this feast. It was basically a potluck dinner, and I think most of you have had a potluck dinner. Only they called it an agape feast. Agape meant self-sacrificing love. It's the type of love that God had for us when he sent Jesus. They were having an agape love feast, and they would do that before taking the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, what you're doing is wrong. You should just cut it out. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead excuse me, you're having to blink, without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do, you, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord. Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup of the, of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep means dead. A number of you have died because you took the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. Uh, we've been talking about for three weeks now that we believe the church is the table where the hungry come to get fed. And we believe that a healthy church has three chairs. Actually, there's a fourth, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Man, I'm just having all kinds of trouble today. Church, a healthy church should be made up of thirds. In this chair should be mature believers. A mature believer is someone who feeds on the bread of life, pushes away from the table, and serves others. They serve people in this chair because a third of the church should be baby Christians, and it shouldn't be children in the back that come to Christ. We believe there are lost people in Anderson County and within driving distance of our church, and we believe that adults can come to Christ. It's more difficult than children, but we've seen it in this church repeatedly that 
people who are, are far from God come to Christ, when these people do what they're supposed to, when the church does what it's supposed to, adults will come to Christ. So there should be baby Christians. A third of this, this congregation should be baby Christians, fresh to the faith. They should not stay babies because we want them to grow up and move into the third chair. And we believe a third of the church should be hell-bound lost people, drug addicts, prostitutes. We want to reach those type of people because Jesus reached those type of people. The church should be made up of those type of people because they're lost and going to hell. We find it unacceptable that anybody within driving distance of this church should go to hell because they do not hear the message. So we're going to constantly come back to, we're a church that reaches out to these type of people because that's who I like to hang out with. Honestly, I don't want to be with a bunch of uptight religious people. I'd rather hang out with lost people because at least they're real with me. Now, this chair over here, this is called the eye chair because it's made up of people who sit in it and they say, feed me, I want to go deeper, I need more, it's all about me. And pastor, don't worry about the people at the table. Turn your back and feed me. So I got a message for you. We said it last week, but this is just repeat. We will love you if you're in the eye chair. You will never run a ministry at New Life if you're in the eye chair because we can't trust you with baby Christians and we sure can't trust you with lost people because you've made ministry about you. Now, the reason we, where we get all this is when Jesus is talking in John chapter six, and he's having this uh, discussion with, um, with a group of people. He's just fed the 5,000 with physical bread, and he switches to a spiritual conversation, and here's what he says in John six thirty-five. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never get hungry. Now, I want you to say these two words that are highlighted in yellow when I get there. Let me start over. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He's talking about spiritual hunger, spiritual thirst. Now, back up, and I want to show you some more words of Jesus. John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Again, when we get to the yellow highlighted words, I want you to say those out loud. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's a little better that time, wasn't it, Travis? Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. God's not condemning you. You condemn yourself if you do not believe. Now, this word believe, we need to understand this because it was a different word back in, in the New Testament age than it is today. It's not just saying, oh, yeah, I agree, I believe. This was a monster word. So to believe actually means to yield your desires to yield your plans, to yield your strength. In other words, to yield everything you are to who Jesus Christ is as Lord, as boss of your life. It's a massive word, and it means this. To believe also means total assimilation. So think of it like this. It means that just what we do with this bread physically, we do with Jesus spiritually. Now, what, what good does it do for me to go, man, that looks like bread. That smells like bread. I think it's, I believe it's bread. This bread doesn't do jack until I do what? Till you eat it and it becomes a part of you. Jesus said like you do with physical bread, you need to do with him the bread of life spiritually if you want to experience God's best for your life. He's the bread of life. And when we take him and we, we have total assimilation of Jesus Christ into our lives, um, he becomes the most important thing of everything we say and do. Now, some of you have wondered before, I think many of you have wondered before, why am I at New Life? Jesus is about to tell you in John 6, 44. 
Look what he says. No one can come to me, he's, this is Jesus talking, un, unless the Father who sent me draws him. People begin to come to Christ. They think they're, they're searching. He, he is working in your life long before you ever even know who he is. He's bringing people across your path. He is actually getting people who, who feed on the bread of life to come out and hand you samples of the Savior so that you'll come to him. And, and the more you respond, the more he's going to put people into your life. So if you've ever wondered, the reason you're here today is because of the aroma of the bread of life, because of the aroma of new life. And I'm not talking about New Life Community Church. In Second uh, Corinthians 5, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. If you're here today, it's because somebody shared with you the aroma of the bread of life. And you said, there is a hunger or thirst in my life. There's got to be something more. And I'm coming to look what that is. Now, if you're a believer, you're commanded. We talked about this last week in Hebrews 10, 25. It should be a habit that defines your life coming to church if you're a believer in Christ. But if you're a seeker, don't just go, man, that looks like bread. Nice bread. That church has nice bread. You need to eat the bread because the bread of life is what satisfies you eternally, spiritually. Now, here's what Jesus says in in verse 51 of chapter 6, John chapter 6. Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread, whoever believes, whoever eats this bread, not a physical bread, not the literal bread that we're going to take in the Lord's Supper today, whoever eats the bread of life spiritually will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. You've heard the saying, you are what you eat. Well, it's true physically. It's also true spiritually. You have to put the right type of nourishment into your soul if you're going to grow up. Now, I want to take just a moment, and I want to go all the way back to the beginning and tell you why we even need the Lord's Supper. Um, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they sinned. Whenever they sinned, it broke their fellowship with God. And so God came down, and God took an innocent animal and killed the animal, taking the skin to cover their nakedness. They didn't know about sin. They didn't know about nakedness until they sinned. And God killed an animal. Now imagine you're Adam and Eve. You're in a perfect paradise, the Garden of Eden. You've never seen death before. And I believe God allowed them to see it because in the New Testament, we're told the wages of sin is death. And I believe this was a, this was a sermon illustration to the max where Adam and Eve saw death for the first time. God took an innocent animal and killed it in front of them. They heard the, the bleeding of the animal. They, they saw the blood poured out. And then God took the skin to cover their nakedness. And they never forgot the wages of sin is death. Sin is so serious that it cost an innocent third party its life so that you might still be living in the presence of God. So their sins might be covered. God killed an innocent third, uh, third party. An innocent third uh, party. So here's the deal. So now I want you to fast forward 2,000 years, 2,000 plus years. The children of Israel are now in Egypt, all right? Pharaoh's in charge. God has done nine different plagues to try to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. Pharaoh. Pharaoh to let his people go. And he refuses, but God has one more thing up his sleeve. Now, this time I want you to imagine that you are a teenager. You're the firstborn in your family, and you're going to go with your dad. Dad says, come on, I want to go pick the best lamb that we have in our herd. So you're going along, and you're, you're 12, 13 years old, and you're following dad, and you say, dad, that's it. It's perfect. There's nothing wrong with that lamb. Let's take that one. Dad says, good choice. He picks up the lamb, takes it back to the barn, gets his axe, raises his hand, and you look on in horror and say, dad, why are you going to kill the lamb? What did the lamb do? And he said, the lamb didn't do anything. Then why are you going to kill it? Because God is angry with our nation because we've sinned. And God has said, I must kill this animal. I must take the blood, wipe it on the doorposts of our 
door so that when the death angel comes tonight, he will pass over. But why kill the lamb? Dad says to you, it's either the lamb or it's you. If I don't kill the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost, you'll be dead by morning. Now, my son, I got to play 27 holes of golf with Caleb yesterday. And if God says you have to choose between an animal and Caleb, that's a no-brainer. I would, I would gladly sacrifice an animal to save my son. And so, God's going to tell us in just a minute that, that if you take the blood of this sinless Savior, the innocent third party, and you apply it to the doorposts of your heart, the death angel will pass over your sins. Well, before we get there... When John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan River, he looks up and he sees Jesus walking along and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. For thousands of years, the Israelites have been offering sacrifices to cover their sins. They fully understood what he said. There is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's in John 1, 29. Go ahead, put the, you put it up there, good. So Jesus says, I'm changing the rules. No longer will we offer animal sacrifices. This is why we don't offer animal sacrifices because Jesus said, I will be the sacrifice. I'll be the innocent third party and all who take my blood to cover their sins will not be guilty before God. Now, back to these passages. I read this passage in 1 Corinthians. I read to you the Lord's Supper. Paul, the first thing he says to the Corinthian church is he says, sometimes when you're meeting, it does more harm than good. So maybe you shouldn't even meet. Sometimes when the church was getting together, it was doing more harm than good. And he said, that's, that's not good. They were having this potluck supper, this agape feast. And he said, there's at least two problems that I have with your feast. Number one, he says, there, there is a division. There are divisions in your church. There are cliques going on. Some of you are hanging out with only the people that you call mature. Some of you, quite honestly, are hanging out with the eye chair people. Nobody's paying attention to the baby Christians. Nobody's, nobody's paying attention to lost people or the poor people. He says, this is not right. You should be ashamed. He condemns this practice. And he says, there's a second problem with your church gatherings, this, this potluck dinner. It's selfishness. The rich people were actually getting together, bringing their food, and they were having a little secret meeting where they ate all of their food, and then when the poor people showed up, oh, sorry, we're all out. It'd be like saying, okay, we're going to have this, this small group meeting at this time, and we all, we get together and say, hey, you bring you this, you bring this. And then somebody we don't like comes in, oh, sorry, you're just out of luck. Paul says, What's characterizing your church meetings, your, your potluck dinners, is disorder, gluttony, and drunkenness. That's what's normal. Paul says, you should be ashamed. And he said, when you do this, whenever you treat the church or the body of Christ like this, he says, you despise the body. And he says, you also humiliate the poor. You despise the church and you humiliate the poor. He says... Try, coming to the Lord's Supper, preparing for the Lord's Supper by getting drunk and by humiliating people that Jesus died for is not going to get you the right type of attention from God. Now, after clearing up these two huge issues, Paul goes back to the basics of the Lord's Supper. And he said, here's the basic. The basic is whoever comes to the table, their heart must be right. If you want to experience the blessings and the teaching of God from the Lord's Supper table, your heart must be right. And that was the issue that Corinthians' hearts were not right. So how do we get our hearts right? I'm going to show you that real quickly. Four looks and three remembers. I want you to say that out loud. I want everybody to say that out loud. All right. Number, the first look is look back at the death of Jesus. 
And some of you are going to say, what? That, that, why, would we, why would you remind us to do that? Well, when Jesus, the night before he was crucified, he, he stops in the middle of the, the Passover meal, and he says, as often as you take this Lord's Supper, do it in remembrance of me. And he wants us to remember three specific things. First thing is he wants us to remember he died. Um, it's not the life of Jesus that purchased your salvation. It's the death of Jesus. And if you think about it, you're going, okay, so Jesus never told us to commemorate his birthday. He said, don't you ever forget my death day. Happy death day to you. Happy death day. That seems weird, right? Until you realize his death day offers you spiritual life. And then you can say, I will pray. We sing songs about his death day because that's what he was the innocent third party. And if we take that blood, he purchases our life. Why do you keep talking about blood? Well, I'll read that to you in just a second. So we're supposed to remember he died. Second thing we're supposed to remember is he died as a substitute. You all know about substitute teachers. You know the substitute, right? It's one who takes the place of. If, if you accept that, if you put on Jesus Christ, if you, if you accept the blood of, of Jesus applied to your sins, when the death angel shows up, he doesn't see your sins. When you stand before God someday, he's not going to see your sins. He's going to see the blood of his son, and he's going to say, this is one of mine. But you have a choice. You don't have to accept what Jesus did. You can stand before God someday on your own merits, and the Bible tells us exactly what God's going to say. Depart from me because I don't know who you are. He only recognizes those who the substitute, the blood of Jesus, has come and covered them. And then we're supposed to remember how he died. Oh, wait, I skipped a verse. Sorry. Got to have this verse. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, the substitute. He made him to be the substitute so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You exchange your righteousness for God's righteousness, he welcomes you in. Third thing, we remember how he died. Jesus gave up his life. We read this a couple weeks ago. He, no one took his life. He chose to give it up. And I want you to think about when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane, when, when Judas brings all the religious leaders and they're going to come and they're going to arrest Jesus, what does Peter do? He pulls out his sword. Well, Peter the fisherman, I think he was going for the head and he cuts off the servant's ear because he's such a bad shot. And I don't know, just in my mind, I think Jesus is like, nice shot, dude. He takes the ear, he heals it, which for, if I'm in the crowd trying to arrest Jesus and I watch him attach an ear back to a man's head, I'm going to go, we should not arrest this guy. They did. And here's what he actually said to Peter. Do you, not, do you think I cannot call my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? That's 12,000 angels. Pete, 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 you got it all wrong, dude. I have the power. I give up my life. Put your sword up. He says, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? He said, you've read this. You know the Old Testament scriptures. All of this must happen just like it was prophesied in the Old Testament. Put your sword up. I got this. Now, the remembering we're supposed to do, we don't have a statue. We don't have a monument. Here's what we're supposed to do. When we come to the Lord's table, actually every Sunday, we're supposed to come to the table and we have a dinner with the, with the Savior who is alive. I tell you this all the time because I think you're not getting it. 
Jesus is the only founder of any world religion who's alive, who Sunday after Sunday, we come and sit at the table, we dine with a risen Savior, the only one. I triple dog dare you to find anyone. You'll not find him. The only one whose tomb is empty. When we come to the table, we are fellowshipping with one who is alive. And I want to remind you one other thing from the Old Testament to see where this comes from. They were at Mount Sinai. This is in Exodus chapter 24, but in, in, in Exodus 20 is when he got the Ten Commandments, when Moses went up and got the Ten Commandments. He comes back down and he reads the law to the people, and the people say this after he reads the law, Exodus 24, 3. They answered out loud together, we will do all the things the Lord has said. Now here's what happens. When they agreed to all of this, Moses kills the animals for sacrifice. He takes the blood of the animals and half of it he sprinkles on the altar to cleanse the altar. The other half he sprinkles on the people because the wages of sin is death. And you may go, oh, he's sprinkling blood. If you do not have the blood of Jesus applied to your life, you are not in his family. And then look what he says. He says, this blood, the blood he's sprinkling on them, this is the blood that begins the covenant. So the old covenant started with this blood. And then Jesus, in the middle of the Lord's, or in the Passover meal, he takes a cup. There's four cups in the Passover meal. The third cup is the one Jesus takes right after the meal. It's called the cup of redemption. And it would bring to mind to a Jewish person when, when a young man would go and he would propose to a woman. Actually, what would happen is the young man with his father would go to the woman's uh, house and he would talk to her father. So the two fathers would talk. They would agree on a dowry. If they agreed on the dowry, then the young man who wanted to propose would take the cup of redemption. Same idea, the cup of redemption. He would walk over to her and he would offer it to her and he would say, I offer you my life. And by taking the cup symbolically, if she drank of that cup, she was saying, I accept your offer and I give you my life in return. When uh, I proposed to Janie, it was on December 7th, 1990. We were in the Hemisphere Tower overlooking the, the Riverwalk in San Antonio. And uh, I'm not usually kind of nervous, but I was kind of nervous that day because I was about to propose to her. I'd been hiding that box. It was kind of cold. I'd been hiding the box with the ring in it. And I actually had to go to the bathroom to get the ring out. And, and so I'm, I'm kind of nervous. I come back and I, and I sit down by her and I slid the box right in front of her. And I had convinced her that I was broke. I was dead flat broke. So her roommate kept saying, you think he's going to propose for your birthday? She's going, no, he's broke. So when I slid the, the box in front of her, she told me later, she thought, it's probably stupid earrings and I got to act like I like it. <laughs> so I waited until she opened it up and I said, will you marry me? And she goes, yes. And she just starts bawling. And the funny thing is, they had some, I didn't even know this at the time, they had a photographer there on retainer, and so the photographer comes running up, and I have to find this picture, I don't know where it is, somewhere in our house, have to find this picture because Janie, mascara is all down her face, and I don't know what I was thinking, but I think the guy goes, hey, look up here, and I went, so it is the worst first picture after an engagement you've ever seen. Um, but what Janie said when she accepted that ring and she slid it on her finger, she said, I accept your proposal. I accept your life and I give you my life in return every time you come to the Lord's table. This is why I cannot, I cannot let you come to the Lord's table without giving some teaching about this. Because every time you take the cup, 
It's like a renewal of vows. It's like I do all over again. You're saying, God, I accept your offer and I give you my life in return. So this is not an add-on. This is not something we just do in the church I grew up in. It was in the church constitution. You had to do it at least once every three months and once on a Sunday morning during the year. That's not what this is. This is remember what Jesus did to purchase your life. So we look back, we look ahead is the next look to Christ's return. Every time you take the Lord's Supper, you're actually proclaiming that you believe Jesus Christ is coming back. Not only did he rise from the dead, he said he was coming back and you're, you're preaching a sermon every time you take the Lord's Supper until Jesus returns. It doesn't tell us that we have to do it once a quarter like the Baptist did. It just says as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Third look is look within. Now here's, this is the real big deal you need to pay attention to today. Paul didn't say that you had to be worthy to take the Lord's Supper. He said to take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. What that means is to examine your heart. Um, heart was the problem with the Corinthian church. When you come to the, the table, and we got three, we got one in the back, we got two up here. When you come to the table with sin in your life, you profane the body and the, the blood of Jesus Christ. And, the, and Paul says some of you are sick, some of you are weak, some of you have died because you dared profane the body and the blood of Christ. So what he says is to judge yourself. And here's the thing. I should have put this on your listening guide. I didn't, but here it is. True self-judgment, this comes straight from the scriptures, makes God's judgment unnecessary. Because if I see sin in my life and I confess that to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if I hold on to that, I'm saying my sin is more important to you, God. Don't you come to the table. So true self-judgment makes God's judgment unnecessary. And here's something else I should have put on the listening guide. It is self-judgment, not others' judgment. Don't you dare look around at someone else who's taking the Lord's Supper and say, they shouldn't be there. If you do that, I'm just going to caution you. Don't you dare come to the table. You, you should go outside and let God deal with your heart before you come back. This is between you and God, not you and your neighbor. God will take care of your neighbor or your spouse or your children, whatever. Well, here's the fourth look, and you may think this is strange. Look around. It's not looking around at other believers to judge them. It's to make sure that you're in unity with them, that there's no division among you. Um, it's impossible for a true Christian to knowingly and intentionally ignore or even nurse a grudge against another Christian. There's one time in the scripture that it says it is okay to leave in the middle of church. And by the way, if you leave when we start the Lord's Supper, please don't come back in here because that's how serious this is. But the Bible says there's one time, if you're at an altar making an offering to God and there you remember someone has something against you, Scripture's real clear. It says, leave your gift at the altar, go make things right, come back, and continue to worship. So, so today, there's some of you that, that have issues with other believers, and you shouldn't come to the table today because you have issues with other believers. Now, the scripture says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. So if you've tried to make peace with them and they won't make peace with them, that's their problem, not yours. You've confessed your sin. You come to the table. But every time we do this, there, there are believers every time that walk out quietly because they know they'd be living a life they came to the table. So if you've confessed, come on freely. If God pierces your heart... 
I would not come to the table. Now, if you're a believer and you just want a little bit of being fed the bread of life week in and week out and you don't want to serve, um, diet and exercise is how you move from baby chair to mature chair. And, and I'll just tell you, we don't have enough people in the mature chair. And the reason Paul condemned the Corinthian church is because they were full of eye chair people. If you're in the eye chair, don't you come to the table until you confess and get out of that eye chair. The one I really want to talk to, though, right now is, is somebody here is in this chair. They know. And, and when I talk to people who are lost, they know. I'm going to hell. If there's a hell, I'm going. Today could be the day that you come to the table for the first time because you're going to admit to God what he already knows. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. That's why Jesus came. And so I'm going to lead a prayer in just a minute. And I'm going to, I'm going to give you some words that if you mean them from your heart, the Bible says you'll be adopted into the kingdom of God. You'll be a child of God. And then you can come to the table. And then taking the bread, you're saying to God, I just accepted you and I'm taking this bread just like I accept, accepted you spiritually. Today could be your spiritual birthday. Now, I just want to say that nobody here is kind of married. You're either married or you're not. You're either a child of God or you're not. May 25th, 1991, I stood before God, before my brother who was the pastor, and I said to Janie, I do. She said to me, I was there. I'm not kind of married. I'm married. When I was six years old, I prayed and accepted Christ. And because nobody really helped me grow, when I was 18, right before my 19th birthday, I was at a Christian conference, and I prayed a second time. It was July 15th, 1983, because I had doubts, and I wrote it down in my book. And I encourage you, if you pray today, write down this date. Because when I wrote that down, Satan quit messing with me about my spiritual birthday. I believe I was saved at six, but I don't know, I don't know the date. But I have a July 15th, 1983. I know that date because I prayed again just to get rid of all of those doubts. Now, I want you to bow your heads for just a moment. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. When we finish that, I'm going to show the video, The Passion of the Christ. When The Passion of the Christ video is over, you are welcome to come to the table if you've confessed and you're ready. If there's something in your heart that needs to be addressed, you sit there. We'll play lots of music. that We're not in a hurry. Or if you need to leave... Please leave quietly. I don't want any talking going on in here. You can talk in the living room. Feel free to do that, but close the door quickly because this is a serious time in the presence of God. If you don't know whether you're in the kingdom of God, I want you to pray something with me. Pray something like this. You, you say it in your words silently where you are. God, in a couple of minutes, I'm going to eat the bread during communion. And it symbolizes that I've asked you to come into my heart, into my life. God, I give you my dreams. I give you my ambitions. I give you my mind. I give you my body. I give you my relationships. I give you everything that I know of myself. Christ, I give to you. You're the source of life, and I believe you're going to satisfy this hunger and this thirst in my soul. Now, believers in the room with your heads still bowed, I want you to pray this out loud as an encouragement to non-believers. And non-believers, you can pray this too. Lord God, please forgive my sins. We got more believers than that in this room. 
We're going to say that again. Lord God, please forgive my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and lead the rest of my life. If you just prayed that and you meant it, please write it on your registration card and please come see me and tell me because I've got some things I want to share with you. Father, make us into a group of people who are wholeheartedly devoted to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.